Okay, this is a continuation of the series that we have on the doctrines of grace, and we are on the T in TULIP, uh, total inability, total depravity, radical depravity. All of those are synonyms, um, and today what I wanted to do was to look at the implications of uh, total inability, radical uh, corruption, on evangelism. And the reason I selected this topic is because I've had conversations with people in the past where they have wrestled with the question of do the doctrines of grace somehow uh, subdue our interest in evangelism? Is there a, a damper that somehow is created uh, if one holds to total inability, unconditional election, etc.? And the obvious answer is no, but, but there are a number of characterizations of the doctrines of grace that are out there. Some of them are not entirely accurate. So I, what I want to do is to describe for you what the scriptures teach on total inability and what some of the most ardent proponents of total inability have, uh, have taught, um, and, and then integrate that with the very important topic of evangelism. If, if a person is, and the if is yes, and it is true, that a person cannot respond in a positive way to the gospel without divine enablement, uh, then wherein is the role and, and to how do we evangelize? What's the content? We know the content is the gospel, but uh, or is there a role for some of the ancillary uh, things, uh, apologetics, for instance? What, what role would apologetics have in evangelism? And, uh, and, and how, do we, how do we integrate these, these topics? How do we properly understand them? So that's, that's really the, the purpose for our time together today. By way of background, you may recall, uh, some of you weren't here last week, but last week we t looked at John 6:44 uh, in some detail and looked at uh, total inability and uh, what that means and, and we'll look at what it does not mean and the implications in terms of someone's ability to understand and respond positively to the gospel. Those are two different things. To understand is one thing. To respond positively is something altogether different. But uh, I've got some excerpts here from our friend Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a, uh, a Baptist preacher. Uh, the Prince of Preachers is his nickname. I'm sure he would not have appreciated that term in his own life. But, but uh, many people today call him the Prince of Preachers. But uh, a, a noted uh, expositor of God's word and an ardent evangelist uh, and a very steadfast proponent of what we call the doctrines of grace. And we'd used the term Calvinism in the past. I'm not fond of that term, and I'm pretty sure that John Calvin would not have been fond of that term. So I, I'll just use the term doctrines of grace and, uh, and what that means. So the question is, uh, first, um, what, what does this mean in John 6.44, for instance, where the scripture tells us that no one can come to the Father unless they are drawn? And you may recall last week we, we spoke about the fact that there's a difference between can and will. Um, and John 6.44 speaks of ability. Uh, and there is also the question of is there any inclination to, to come to the gospel? And the answer to that, apart from divine intervention, is no. There is no ability whatsoever. Uh, and there is no inclination whatsoever apart from the divine intervention of God to change someone's heart. Scripture is very clear on that. So then, what does it not mean? And, and Spurgeon was dealing with this very topic in a sermon that he gave to his congregation in, in London. 
And wherein, he, he asked the question, does total inability lie? Where, what, what does it affect? And it does not affect someone's physical ability to respond to the gospel. And, and I'm not sure what he had in mind, but I can tell you that in today's world, someone can certainly walk the aisle. Someone can certainly kneel. Uh, someone can certainly uh, pray. Uh, but that, does that mean that there's those physical actions are something that someone could not do apart from divine enablement. The answer is also, it, it occurs regularly that, that people make false professions. It, it occurs regularly that people will walk the aisle when in fact they, they really don't understand what they're doing. I was one of those people. Perhaps you could relate to that in your own life, but it doesn't affect someone's physical ability to respond. I think that's obvious. But secondly, it doesn't affect their, their mental ability in terms of their intellect. Can someone intellectually, academically, cognitively understand what's written in the scripture? And the answer is yes, they can understand that. I, I, I did that. Um, and someone, it, it does not affect your IQ, so to speak, when someone is talking about total inability. It doesn't mean that someone can't open the word of God and, and even sit under the preaching of the word of God and understand what is being said. Does that mean that they will be responding, that they will be embracing, that their heart will be welcoming Jesus Christ? And the answer is not necessarily. Uh, that will not happen. They will not embrace Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit grants new life, unless the, the Holy Spirit grants regeneration, unless they're drawn by, by the Holy Spirit, unless they've been chosen in eternity past to respond to the gospel. And that's really the, the point that is being made on, on page one. He's, he's saying, what is not being affected by total inability? And so at the bottom of page one, he says, uh, the, the defect does not lie either in the body or what we are bound to call, speaking theologically, the mind. It is not any lack or deficiency there, although it is the vitiation or the, weak, the weakening or the emptying of the mind, the corruption and the ruin of it which is the very essence of man's ability. So then, what, what is affected by total inability? And the answer is, it affects someone's very character, the, the deepest reaches of their very nature. So part page two, the, the, the very inner being of someone is corrupted by the fall. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when Adam sinned, uh, he represented all mankind by ordinary generation. And all of us, being descendants of Adam, according to Romans 5.12, fell in him. Even though we weren't physically present in the garden, we fell in Adam's transgression and were affected as deeply as he was by his, his transgression of the law of God. And so that we're, we, physical death is a consequence of that. All die because all sin. And someone might say, well, I wasn't present in the garden. And you would be absolutely correct, not at least physically, but you were present in Adam. And in Adam's sin, you sinned. And the, the corruption that came into Adam's life came into your life as well. No exceptions other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So the top of page two, through the fall and through our own sin. So it's not only the corruption that entered your life as a result of being in Adam in Genesis 3, but it's because of your own transgressions uh, that you have become debased, depraved, and corrupt. And those are not particularly pleasing words to hear, but th that's the way that the scripture describes us. So I can tell you that if someone is dealing with total inability and a, and a stranger comes in and they're looking for a warm and winsome 
message that afternoon, they're probably not going to, to respond very well. But they might. But it, it could be perhaps the most important message that they could hear if they're outside of Christ and the gospel is presented. It's impossible for a person to respond to Christ without the assistance of God the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit in calling, regenerating, granting a new heart. His nature is so corrupt he has neither the will, the inclination, the disposition, or the power to come to Christ unless drawn by the Spirit. John 6.44. This, this is all derived from a message that Spurgeon was giving on this particular passage. So, what does total inability mean? And first, it lies in the obstinacy of the human will, he says. O, says the Arminian, men may be saved if they will. And we reply, dear sir, we all believe that, but it is just the if they will that is the difficulty. The answer, they, they won't. We assert that no man will come to Christ unless he be drawn. Nay, we do not assert it, but Christ himself declares it. And he's going to John six forty four. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's not human supposition. It's not some theologian coming up with this on their own initiative. This is the direct testimony of the scripture itself. It's strange, he goes on to say, how people, when talking about free will, talk of things they do not understand. Now, says one, I believe men can be saved if they will. My dear sir, that is not the question. So it's, it, the, 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 the issue is not if they will. The question is can they? Is there any will? Is there any in, inclination or capacity to respond to the gospel apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. They will not. So when we evangelize and we're dealing with people who have absolutely no inclination to respond in a positive way to the gospel unless and until the Holy Spirit grants new life. You're looking for someone to, to experience a Lazarus-like experience, so to speak. And that's a wonderful metaphor. When Jesus said, Lazarus, arise, that's a picture, so to speak. It was an actual miracle, um, for sure. But it's, it's a picture of what literally takes place when someone responds to the gospel. They're literally moved from death to life. Ephesians 2 says, we're born dead in sin, totally unable to respond. And someone might say, well, I have a will. And the answer is, you do have a will. But we, we go on and we talk about what does that mean. And he goes on and he says, we declare upon scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief, and he's using that in a, in a very severe way, so depraved, so inclined to everything that is evil, so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will will ever be constrained towards Christ. Anyone who's sitting here today that affirms Jesus Christ as Savior and has experienced the new birth has experienced the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us. Every single one. You're a beneficiary of God's abundant grace in granting life where life did not exist. The universal confession of all true believers is this. I know that unless Jesus Christ had sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, I would to this very hour have been wandering far from him, at a distance from him, and loving that distance well. With common consent, all believers affirm the truth that men will not come to Christ till the Father who has sent them draws them.
That is John 6, 44. Now, and you may be asking, well, what does the scripture say? And it, it, I, that's a wonderful question. We covered all of this really in some detail, a, a, a number of scriptural passages, and there are copies of the notes from last week's uh, discussion on John 6:44 and total inability in the back. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, and you want to know what passages of scripture directly relate to this, those, those, were, those passages, I won't say were comprehensively discussed because we only had... Uh, 45 or 50 minutes, and, but I, I covered a, a great number dealing with the impact of total inability on the mind, the will, the disposition of man, the, the affections of man. All of those are, are discussed, and we did this last week. So the understanding is affected, and our affections. We, what, what Spurgeon is saying that our affections are impacted is the Scripture would tell us that we, we do not love Jesus Christ apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit. We do not. Now, someone might say, if you had asked me, for instance, as an unsaved young man uh, in college, my first year in college, and said, who is Jesus Christ? I would have said, he's the Son of God. I, intellectually, I would say that, and I, I, I really meant that. Did I understand that I was lost and that apart from Jesus Christ, that I had no hope of heaven? And the answer is no, I did not understand that. Did I love Jesus Christ in the sense of looking to him and him alone and saying, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sin and delivering me from certain judgment and damnation. I did not embrace Jesus Christ, and neither did you until the Holy Spirit changed your heart. But when he does that, you do love Jesus Christ. You embrace him. He is precious to you. He is that great treasure in your heart, in your life. And that's really the point that Spurgeon goes on to say, that until we are changed... We love that which we ought to hate, and we hate that which we ought to love. And he goes on to say that it is until these affections are renewed and turned into a fresh channel by the gracious drawings of the Father, it is not possible for anyone to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And top of page four, conscience. Sometimes we talk about the, the conscience and, and, and the conscience in evangelism. What's the role of conscience? It, it's interesting, uh, Spurgeon made this comment that conscience has been uh, overpowered by the fall. And he says, I believe there's no more egregious mistake made by divines or theologians than when they tell people that conscience is the vice regent of God within the soul and that it is one of those powers which retains its ancient dignity and stands erect amidst the fall of its, of its peers. He's not dismissing conscience. So... If you, what you're hearing in that first sentence is that Spurgeon says a conscience plays no role, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when we fell, and we did fall, every single one of us fell in Adam, we fell in our entirety. Every capacity in our being fell. None, no a aspect of our being was left unaffected, untouched, uncorrupted, undefiled by the fall. Every single capacity in us was radically corrupted. And when we use the term radical, I spoke last week, there was an article by R.C. Sproul. Radix is the, the Latin term for, for core, the very essence. And the point is, when we talk about total inability, that does not mean that we act out in our being uh, it, all the evil that we're capable of, praise God. But it does mean that we, that we are just as bad off as we could be. Uh, every single one of us, regardless of how overtly uh, evil our aspect uh, may be. But he goes on to say that, that 
the, 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 the conscience was not destroyed. He's not dismissing the conscience altogether. He's saying that, that the conscience has fallen, um, that conscience, he says, beloved can tell me that I am a sinner, but conscience cannot make me feel that I am one. And the point that he's making is, so we're evangelizing someone, and, and I've done this at the abortion clinics. I've, I've tried to appeal to someone's conscience. And that is, is, it's helpful, but it is, is not necessarily a compelling thing. Just because I appeal to someone's conscience does not mean that, that, that they're going to suddenly be given the, the gift of new life. I might look at one of the aides out at the abortion clinic and, and might say, you're, you're comforting yourself by taking a sip of cold water. Uh, you're, you're fanning yourself uh, to, to comfort yourself from the heat. But believe me, there is no cup of cool water for the baby that's being slaughtered inside this, the, the walls of that building. I'm appealing to their conscience, but yet they listen and they walk away and their heart is hard and they are adamant in their, in their indifference to me. And it hurts and it makes me angry inside that, that that happens. It does. I appeal to their conscience. That does not mean that they do not have a conscience. It simply means that the conscience is not a compelling argument. It can be your friend and God may choose to use the conscience, but it is not sufficient in and of itself. It's been corrupted along with all the other aspects. But then he goes on to say at the bottom, but allow me to go a little further. My text does not say no man will come. Praise God. If that were true, none would be saved. But it says no one can come. That means there is no capacity unless there is new life. And so he goes on to make a distinction between someone's will and someone's power. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and skip. That's, that's background. I wanted to re- refresh some of our thinking uh, on this. Um, but uh, I'd like to go now to the, what role does apologetics play? So we're dealing with dead people. We're, we're literally preaching to a graveyard. We're, we're dealing with people who have no capacity whatsoever. There was there none of you. There is none of, uh, who seeks after God. The scripture says that. There's literally none. So if someone says, I remember when I was seeking God, what you may be remembering is the fact that you were being called, uh, that the Father was calling you. That does not mean that, that because you were seeking God that, that God wasn't drawing you. And, and so at some point, God was calling you. And if he was calling you, I can assure you on the authority of God's word that you responded positively at some point to the gospel. There is no one that is called by the Father and and given new life by the Holy Spirit that does not respond positively, savingly to the gospel. None exceptions whatsoever. That's called efficacious grace, effectual grace, irresistible grace. We'll we'll get into that. That's that's the I in in the TULIP acronym. But so apologetics. What's what's the role of apologetics? We we had a conversation not too long ago about. What's the substance of what we should be saying to people? Scripture, of course. Do we need to explain the Scripture? Yes, we need to explain the Scripture. We had a conversation about using Bible terminology. First John talks about Jesus being the propitiation, the average person on the street. And in fact, many churchgoers have no understanding of what that wonderful term means. So we need to explain that. But we need to stay riveted to the scripture and explain the meaning of these scriptural terms so that it, it's, it's meaningful to them. They have the intellect, but that intellect has to be energized, has to be enabled by the Holy Spirit for that truth to take root in their lives. But uh, the, the, the 
Cornelius Van Til. He taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Some people would say that he really was a, a very foundational person in what we call presuppositional apologetics. Uh, he said presupposition is the best proof. And then the, this particular article says, I, I agree that presupposition is a proof and evidence, but it cannot be regarded as best. John Calvin got it right when he wrote, those who strive to build up firm faith in Scripture through disputation or argument are doing things backwards. Uh, he goes on to say that the testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all uh, reason. And, and this, this quote, you can read it, but the point that's being made is that when we start talking about the use of apologetics and its role, we have to define our terms. We have to say, what is the, the what is it intended to do? And there's, I'll get to this, Lord willing, as we move along. But it's designed to actually shame uh, the unbeliever, so to speak. That's what Peter says in First Peter 3, uh, to shut the mouth of the unbeliever and to uh, buttress the, the faith of the believer who's engaging in an evangelistic endeavor. But the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, His Word never fails to accomplish the purpose for which He sends it. And so the, the Word of God is used by the Spirit of God in effecting the conversion of lost souls. Always trust the, the Holy Spirit's use of His Word in evangelism. That's, that's your sword. That's the sword of the Spirit that we're talking about, is the use of Scripture. And so... Is we that's just an introduction, but the top of page six, there's an article in Banner of Truth about this very issue about apologetics and and how we engage in discussions with unbelievers. And uh, there's a, the opening line: judged by the unqualified appeals in much modern evangelism to the natural man's unaided reason. In other words, there would be those who would say that. that we can just appeal to reason, emotions, and will uh, in evangelizing uh, apart from the Word of God. Uh, one might conclude that the modern man is able to respond positively and that he has no need of God's efficacious grace. That is wrong. The man is not able to respond. And he does need, in every instance, God's efficacious grace to give him new life. Whenever a man is confronted with the claims of God, he reacts as one both unable and unwilling to comply. God approaches the sinner when he is dead in trespasses and sins. What then can he do? Can he do anything at all? Clearly the answer is no. Is fallen, man exists in a state of living death. That's, when, when we're dealing in evangelism, that's how we need to view our audience. Living death the elements of which leave him without the least power to heed God's wooing call. That does not mean that God's call is ineffectual. It simply means that when God calls, that the Holy Spirit will inevitably grant new life. And so the fact that someone is given the gospel and proclaimed that the Holy Spirit must grant new life and does grant new life in every case, in every instance, without fail, when someone has come savingly to Jesus Christ, it is because, number one, they have been chosen in eternity past. Number two, that they have been called by the Father. Number three, that the Holy Spirit has changed their heart and granted saving faith. Every case. No exceptions whatsoever. No one comes who is not chosen. Do we know who's chosen? Charles Spurgeon said... 
If the elect had a yellow stripe on their back, I would go up and down the street lifting up their shirt tails looking for all the yellow stripes, and I'd be preaching to them. But we have no physical indication. We don't know who the elect are. We don't. So who do we, who do we preach to? Every person. Every person. And God draws who he will. How do you know if you're elect? Do you respond to the gospel? Are you saved? If you're saved, you're elect. No exceptions whatsoever. But, it, but that's the point that he's making. He says, true, he was originally endowed with free will, but by sinning he has put his will into the power of another, Satan. And it is now in bondage. Colossians 1, we looked at this passage last week, that God has delivered us from the dominion of Satan. As an unsaved person, you were in bondage to one who hates you and only wishes your eternal perdition, your eternal condemnation. That's who your taskmaster was before God saved you. And when you were saved, God rescued you from the dominion of the devil himself. And he moved you into the dominion of his beloved son. That is what miracle took place. You may not have known that, but God, that's exactly what God has done. He has rescued from one who hates your soul. And he's moved you into the, the sweetest, most loving master of all eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Whatever freedom it retains is freedom only to choose evil. This is the unsaved will and refuse the good. It is incapable of exercising its freedom to turn to God. So he goes on to say every movement towards God is grace from first to last. We call that monergism. It's essentially it's a work of God from start to finish. It began in eternity past and it leads to to a, a, a heaven full of worshipers in eternity future. And it's all God's work. It is all God's miraculous work. By his regenerating grace, he creates, God does, a Godward response to the divine call, enacting Ezekiel's divine surgery. That's Ezekiel 11, verse 19. What takes place is absolutely a miracle. God takes away a heart of stone, and he gives you a heart of flesh. And that's a wonderful metaphor that the Holy Spirit is used in, in Ezekiel 11. A heart of stone is completely insensitive. It, it's, it's completely unresponsive. And that's your, that was your heart outside of Christ. Every, every single person here before Christ, you had a heart of stone. And, and every single one of us. And what has God done? He's taken out a heart of stone and he's given a sweet, responsive, not calloused heart. A heart of flesh. A heart that embraces Jesus Christ. And, and will worship him for all eternity. That's what God has done, is he's granted a brand new heart. So the necessity of this work is, is evident from man's total inability to regenerate himself. A fellow by the name of Henry Skugel wrote a book called the, the Life of God and the Soul of Man, and that's literally what, what takes place in conversion. Page 7. Um, I've got to be moderate here in my use of time. Um, there is no aspect, I think we've established this fairly carefully here, uh, that is unaffected by the fall, and so there needs to be this new creation. And that's Paul, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old things have passed away, and new things have come. Old things have passed away, new, new things have come. And so in terms of uh, conclusion, uh, just in the middle of the second to the last paragraph, when will self 
the question, when will self-styled evangelists learn that man is really unable to convert himself to God and that he needs God's efficacious grace to perform the work in him? Until they learn this, they will continue to rob God of the glory of his grace and produce only spurious conversions. We don't do that. We're not trying to to arm twist people into the kingdom of God. We're not trying to reason people into the kingdom of God when we engage in evangelism. I I know this congregation. I know you're not doing that. But it is not unusual in modern-day evangelicalism, particularly in some streams of evangelicalism, to think that if you adjust the music the right way and you make multiple appeals and you appeal to someone's emotions and you begin to manipulate them in certain ways, that you can affect, and you do affect, a certain emotional response. And that's interpreted to be conversion. And that is not necessarily conversion. All you've done is manipulate someone's will by, by affecting their emotions. You've not, you've not caused them to be born again. And, and so that's the, the point that this article is, is making. And, and so he's arguing, and I think very importantly, against what happens in evangelism. So top of page 8. So then what, what are the means that God uses? And uh, this particular article by Paul Helm, I'll, I'll let you uh, read this at some length, but the question is raised, and this is why I chose this topic. Many people struggle with God's sovereignty in election because they believe it excludes the activity of evangelism. I've heard that. I don't know if you have, but I've heard that. And that's really sad. That, that clearly communicates a lack of understanding because to believe in God's sovereignty in election, if anything, should give you confidence in evangelism. It, it absolutely should undergird your, your backbone in going out into a hostile and unbelieving world knowing that God has a people out there. It, it's like Paul was told in, 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 in Corinth, I've got many people in this place, so keep talking. And that's, that, that's the same thing that he says to us in so many ways through the scripture when he gives us the mandate to make disciples of all nations. I have people, and, and they were purchased by Jesus Christ. So go talk to them. I don't know who they are. Then talk to everybody, and I'll sort it out. That's what God's saying. I've already decided who they are. And you don't need to know who they are. They will respond. And I'm being a little simplistic, but that's their audience is the, is the world. That doesn't mean that the world will respond, world without exception. There was a question that was raised uh, by, by someone about John 3.16. What's the role of, of whosoever? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever or whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. How do we understand that? The answer is actually pretty straightforward. If you believe, you'll have everlasting life. That's what that means. That is a promise, that is an assurance that whoever believes will have everlasting life. Does that mean that the promise creates the capacity in everyone who hears? And the answer is no. And and so John 6, 44, and and there's other passages as well, tells us that no one comes unless they're called, unless the Father draws them. But the answer is if, if, if you believe truly in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for saving faith, you will not perish. That's what that means, John 3.16. It is a glorious promise, and it's a promise that we should proclaim openly and, and with enthusiasm that if you believe, you will be saved. You will not perish. Does that mean that everyone to whom we make that declaration, that wonderful, glorious promise, has the capacity or the inclination to believe? No. Does it mean that even the elect will respond at that particular moment? No. Excuse me. 
they moved the mic. It used to be over there. Now it's up here. Um, but uh, but I, I was such a person. I, I heard the gospel several times. I, I remember very clearly uh, hearing the gospel several times as an unsaved person and not embracing Jesus Christ. Am I elect? Yes. Was it because of anything I had done? No. It was only because of the sovereign, merciful uh, grace of God that he chose me in eternity past to respond to his, his glorious gospel. So when we, when we evangelize and we, we declare the promises of God and how someone can have eternal life, we don't know whether they're elect or not. And that should not diminish our enthusiasm uh, or, or, or inclination to go out and to, to share the gospel with them because God has a people. And there are souls out there that have yet to respond. And our role is to take that glorious message to them. And that's really the, the essence of this particular article. So I'll let you read that. Uh, it's your own. So I'm going to move on to page 11. And the question is, again, reverting back to the role of apologetics. Um, what is the role of apologetics? And this is a, an article by R.C. Sproul. Um, opening line, with each passing generation, wherever Christianity flourishes, so do distortion, misrepresentation, overemphasis, and outright malicious deceit. If you've, been, if you've gone out and you've evangelized, you've seen every single one of those things in, in your life. You've experienced that. The church's opponents will continue to accuse her of doing evil. You've heard that. And the Christian apologist assumes a defensive posture in order to repel false accusations whenever they come. So the question is, what's, what's the role of apologetics? And, and I think if anyone believed in total inability and effectual grace and, and a, an atonement that was for those who had been elect, etc., it was, it was R.C. Sproul. But he goes on and he, and he says, it does, the apologetics, you're not just playing defense. You're not just simply giving, uh, you know, playing defense. It also involves offense. And the, the reason he says that, just to kind of cut to the chase, is among other passages, he goes to First Peter three fifteen and 16. And let me read this to you. Actually, I'll start in verse 14 of First Peter 3. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Okay, so when you encounter opposition, and you will, then, then don't fear the intimidation because it, it will come. But what, would, what do you do? And the answer that is given is sanctify or set the Lord Jesus Christ apart in your life. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And the next part is difficult, but it's, it's imperative. Yet, with gentleness and reverence. We don't respond with a curse for a curse. We respond with a blessing when we're cursed. And, and we speak with gentleness, we speak with confidence, we speak with reverence. And, and why do we do that? And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. This is how you respond to opposition. This actually speaks to the role of apologetics, that there is a reason for the hope that is in you. And that reason is certainly rooted in Scripture. And, and you, you share with 
that person who is assailing you the promises of God. And if they ask you some, some honest questions uh, that, that may be on their heart, uh, then you can get into a discussion about presuppositional apologetics with them and, 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 and have a discussion. But the scripture also says that you don't answer a fool according to his folly. And, and I, I can tell you this, this last uh, time at the, at the abortion clinic, there was someone who had no inclination whatsoever to hear. Does that mean he wasn't elect? I don't know. He certainly heard the gospel, but there was no line of reasoning at all that was going to be heard. He was not receptive. He only wanted to speak. He wanted to disparage. He wanted to make his point. That's not an audience. That's, that's someone who is, is not receptive. There may be a time, and I pray that there will be a time that God will soften that particular person's heart. He may be elect. It, it may be. I, I certainly was not always responsive to the gospel, but at that particular point, we spoke with gentleness, we spoke with reverence, we spoke with confidence, we gave a reason for the hope that was within us. And, but there is a, a role for discussing the, the, the apologetics and, and speaking with someone about the gospel. So let me go over to the next page on page 12. The top of page 12 and this is speaking of this, this passage of 1 Peter 3. The apostle clearly expects that one outcome of apologetics is that the enemies of Christ are put to shame. Maybe you've never thought of it that way. This is reminiscent of the great Genevan reformer, John Calvin. So I'm, this was helpful for me. Who wrote in his institutes regarding the proof of the authenticity of biblical prophecies. He was explaining, look at fulfilled prophecy. That, that's a, an apologetic argument that you can make. You can look at fulfilled prophecy in, in world history, in, in the life of Jesus Christ, any number of instances of fulfilled prophecy. But then he goes on to say, Calvin does, if godly men take these things to heart, they will be abundantly equipped to restrain the barking of ungodly men. That was Calvin talking about people disparaging to restrain the barking of ungodly men. For this is proof too clear to be open to any subtle objections. If anyone believed that the total inability of man required the Holy Spirit to convert a soul, it was Calvin. If anyone believed in the total inability of apologetics to convert a soul, it was Calvin. He did not abandon the apologetic task, but he still used evidence and argument to prove matters of faith, not to convert the hearts of the ungodly, but to stop their obstreperous mouths. This is a large part of the task of the Christian apologist to prove the Christian worldview and to rely on God to cause the acquiescence of the unbelieving heart to the soundness of biblical doctrine. The church is up against not mere ignorance, but biased enmity. Only the spirit can overcome this enmity. But the spirit never asks people to believe what is absurd or irrational. Calvin noted the distinction between proof and persuasion. Proof is objective. Persuasion is subjective. People who are hostile to certain ideas may have those ideas proven to them, but in their bias, they refuse to be persuaded. And to me, that was one of the best ways of looking at the role of apologetics. You can offer proof, but proof does not mean persuasion. But you still make the argument, and then we rely upon the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. So apologetics is not merely about winning an argument, and it never is. 
It's about winning souls. It's, it's, a, uh, it's an adjunct capacity to uh, the gospel. Now, page 13, and this is key. So then, what is our role? J.I. Packer and Diane and I had the wonderful experience of spending several days with J.I. Packer a number of years ago. He wrote the, the, the wonderful book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And I just have to hit some of the highlights. Number one, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the necessity of evangelism. Whatever we may believe about election, the fact remains that evangelism is necessary because no one can be saved without the gospel. They must be told before they can trust, and they must trust before they can be saved. So there's nothing that we're affirming in terms of the sovereignty of God that should cause a stilling of enthusiasm for evangelism. Number two, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the urgency of evangelism. The world is full of people who are unaware that they stand under the wrath of God. Is it not similarly a matter of urgency that we should go to them and try to arouse them and show them the way of escape? The non-elect in this world are faceless men as far as we are concerned. We know that they exist, but we do not know and cannot know who they are. Our calling as Christians is not to love God's elect and them only, but to love our neighbor, irrespective of whether he is elect or not. That's helpful. Number three, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the genuineness of the gospel invitation. The fact remains that God in his gospel really does offer Christ and promise justification in life to whosoever will. The fact that the gospel invitation is free and unlimited is the glory of the gospel as a revelation of divine grace. And then lastly, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the responsibility of the sinner for his reaction to the gospel. So do, do, do our views on election and the sovereignty of God and efficacious grace and total inability cause our enthusiasm for evangelism to wane? And the answer is absolutely not. If anything, it should fuel our enthusiasm for evangelism knowing that God will inevitably call and change the hearts of his people. And we do not know who they are, and we do not know when they will respond. And it is not our concern or prerogative in that regard, but our responsibility and our concern is to be dispensers of that truth, to share that truth with urgency, with clarity, with fidelity, knowing that God will and does save his people, and that none of his people will be left to perdition, not a single one. I just wanted to close with some of these quotes by Charles Spurgeon. I started with Spurgeon, and I'd like to close with a few of these. I can't read them all to you, but I I love these quotes. Let each one of us, if we've done nothing for Christ, begin to do something now. The distribution of tracts is the first thing. So, for you tract givers, Spurgeon would endorse that. When preaching and private talk are not available, you need to have a tract ready. Get good striking tracks. He means good, attractive, biblically sound tracks, or none at all. But a touching gospel track may be the seed of eternal life. It was for me. I was given a track in 1971 by a co-worker in, in a lab I was working in. And I took it home in my apartment. I read it, and God changed my heart. He gave me a track. And, and God used it to, to deliver me from wrath. Number three. Do you want arguments for soul winning? Look up to heaven and ask yourself how sinners can ever reach those harps of gold and learn their everlasting song unless they have someone to tell them of Jesus, who is mighty to save. 
But the best argument of all is to be found in the wounds of Jesus. You want to honor him. You desire to put many crowns upon his head. And this you can do best do by winning souls for him. These are the spoils that he covets. These are the trophies for which he fights. These are the jewels that shall be his best adornment. If there be any one point which the Christian church ought to keep its fervor at white heat, it is concerning missions. If there be anything about which we cannot tolerate lukewarmness, it is the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with their arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We are not called to proclaim philosophy and metaphysics, but the simple gospel. Man's fall, his need of a new birth, forgiveness through atonement, and salvation as a result of faith, these are our battle axe and weapons of war. So I started with Spurgeon, and I want to conclude with Spurgeon. If ever there was a proponent for earnest evangelism, it was Charles Spurgeon. If ever there was someone who was an earnest advocate of the doctrines of grace, it was Charles Spurgeon. Our argument is not Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon took his congregation to the scriptures. And I, I did that last week. I took you to a number of passages. But I wanted to deal with this whole issue about... How does a view of the sovereignty of God affect our fervor for evangelism? And, and the answer is that it is a perversion of the understanding of the doctrines to grace to, to, for anyone to assert that it is a deterrent to, evan to evangelism. In fact, it is a fuel for enthusiasm to evangelism. So if you're wondering, or, for, or perhaps you've heard, that, that no one can believe in, the, in these sovereign grace doctrines and be anything less than enthusiastic, about about so sharing the gospel, then it, there, there is a misunderstanding. You needed to clear up that understanding. The doctrines of grace fuel enthusiasm, and they compel us to evangelism, and they give us confidence in evangelism, knowing that God has a people, knowing that the one who is called will come, knowing that God takes away a heart of stone and he gives a heart of flesh, knowing that Jesus, in fact, died not just to make salvation possible, but to make it real for those he died for, and knowing that he keeps until eternity's end those whom he saves. Those are the doctrines of grace, and that should fuel your love for, for evangelism and the love for lost souls, or for lost souls. We do not know who will respond, but we know that everyone needs to hear. And that's, that's the, the connection between the doctrines of grace and, and the, the role of evangelism.